My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. Alright, let's start the show. Hi everyone, today we're discussing breast and endocrine surgery with Mr. Michael Law, who's a surgical consultant. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Yeah, thank you. And me. Can you start by telling us a bit about your journey from internship through to where you are now? Well, um, I was trained at uh, St. Vincent's uh, Hospital, Melbourne, and uh, so did medical school and then through that, and uh, I also did my internship and residency uh, through that program, and uh, got into surgical training, uh, that was in the older pathway when we, there was still uh, what we call basic surgical training, which uh, no longer exists these days. Uh, after a couple of years of that, uh, then we applied for advanced training, got our, our part one exams, and uh, I uh, was trained in general surgery, uh, seeing these as well. And uh, after doing my fellowship exams, uh, I uh, decided to do breast and endocrine surgery. After that, so I did a yeah, and a bit of fellowship. What uh, at what point in your junior years did you decide surgery was for you? Well, pretty much right from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always a little bit more sort of uh, instant gratification type, so I do. Yeah. I do like uh, you know being able to sort of do things and fix things. Um. So you know, it's always sort of more. I'm a more procedural inclined. Yeah. That's right from the start, and uh, I think. You know, once I sort of done a few surgical rotations in my clinical years, to learn what the uh, 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 surgery is all about, yeah, that kind of was a thing for me. Yeah. Now, general surgery mm. and surgery in particular are quite large fields. Mm. What in your fellowship led you towards breast and endocrine? So the decision was, um, you know, it, we're obviously in the general pathway. Yeah. So general pathway opens up many subspecialties. Um, so there were a few options that were being contemplated. And I guess at the end of the day, it was a bit of a lifestyle choice. Uh, probably a breast and endocrine is a specialty that's more amenable to lifestyle. It's a lot, bit less on core than some of the other specialties around, and the patients are generally less acute. And I think uh, once you sort of start doing a little bit more, you, you realize that there's a more sort of a uh, interaction uh, with the patient that's more than just the technical medical side. Um, especially for breast surgery. Uh, and I think for the endocrine surgery, there's a good element of, um, of medicine in there. And I think that I, I find mm. that quite attractive. Did you do a breast and endocrine um, rotation during your fellowship or during your uh, years? Yeah, we all, we all had to do multiple rotations. And uh, as part of the general surgical training, uh, it was mandatory to do breast and endocrine as part of that. And uh, so I did a couple of rotations on... Uh, units at different hospitals like Box Hill and Peter McCallum as part of the St. Vincent's rotation. And uh, they, uh, I, I certainly met a few of my man- current mentors uh, who then inspired me to continue. To go through breast and endocrine. Yeah. Now, mm. uh, just prior to the decision of going through mm. with breast and endocrine, was there another particular uh, surgical subspecialty which you were quite close to going, going yeah, into? Good, good question. I actually always wanted to do... The reason why I got into general surgery was I originally wanted to do colorectal ah okay yeah and uh, i had multiple colorectal terms and i was a student and uh, very junior resident 
and uh, I had an enjoyable time. And I still I still enjoy the bowel surgery side of things. Yeah. But um, you know, at the end of the day, the uh, specialties were a bit more demanding for for the sure. time. And uh, I, you know, I think as I said to you before earlier, it was much more lifestyle decision. At the end. So it was the lifestyle that in the end yeah. brought you towards this. That's right. Now, uh, with your post as a surgeon in a public hospital, mm. do you do work outside of breast and endocrine? Uh, yeah. So these days, uh, despite the subspecialties. Uh, you find that most people who are trained both as a specialty surgeon and a general surgeon would be expected to do some general surgery on call. Yeah. And uh, that's what that's what uh, I do at uh, Eastern Health. Yeah. Uh, as part of the general and core roster, but most of the uh, the regular daytime work uh, attached to the specialty unit as a, as a breast and endocrine. And so that's a, a standard, I guess, um, requirement of specialised general surgeons? Not necessarily. I mean, the thing is there are arrangements uh, in different hospitals between different units, uh, whether they go into general and core or whether they go into the specialty or in core, and also depend on the interest or the expertise of the uh, surgeons sure. involved. So there are multiple factors that come into play. Uh, where I work, uh, obviously, um, you, know, I, um, you know, I do still enjoy a little bit of variety the on-call work from time to time yeah um, you know it's uh, things can get a little bit repetitive uh, we just keep doing your own specialty things and yeah. this uh, allows you to have a little bit of extra varieties and uh, it's also a providing a service for the for the network yeah now outside of clinical <coughs> medicine do you have any non-clinical roles yeah I do um, so I do a lot a lot of administrative work at the, at the, at the hospital at the, in, within Eastern Health um, for mainly for run, running uh, the unit and rostering and so forth. Sure. I'm also the um, uh, hospital supervisor at Marunda for uh, uh, the uh, surgical gen- general surgical training. Ah, okay. Uh, and uh, so that that's uh, I'm also the supervisor for uh, fellow training uh, for breast and endocrine surgery at Marunda. Yeah. Now, so you've got a few different hats on. Do you have a typical day or a typical week, and what does that involve? Oh, look, uh, you know, I think I think a typical week varies from uh, from week to week, and I think you find most surgeons these days work off, you know, rather complex cycle of yeah of uh, rosters. But uh, yeah, so it's a mix of work basically between public and private work, uh, and any spare time we have, we do the uh, non-clinical duties. Yeah. Uh, so it's about fitting them in, you know, an extra hour here and there. Yeah. And we also do a bit of teaching. Yeah. Uh, obviously with Monash. Um, so I previously used to be the uh, year level coordinator for ah. uh, third and fifth year. Yeah. But uh, that 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 uh, well, you know, you know I, I had to give that up because of the increasing role with the college. Sure. How much <coughs> uh, of your uh, how many sessions a week do you spend operating? Oh, that varies from, again from week to week, but okay. uh, three or four sessions generally. Three or four sessions. Yeah, between public and private. And do you have a similar amount in clinics and in, I guess? Yeah, there will be a lot more clin- clinic work actually. Okay. Uh, to generate enough work to operate on. Sure. Uh, yeah. Thank God not everyone needs an operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the med collab. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. A lot of people do medicine because they're there to help people. Mm. um, And that's probably one of the most rewarding things Mm. about medicine. 
aside from that, what is most rewarding about breast and endocrine or the most uh, satisfying part of the job? Yeah, look, you know, I think being on oncological mainly in our specialties, I think it, uh, it, it really does make a big difference in the patient's life um, in terms of being able to offer them um, hope and being able to offer them, you know, these days what we call survivorship or restoring them back to normality. Um, a lot of the cancer surgery is quite destructive, yeah. um, obviously, but uh, being able to um, restore them uh, to uh, good cosmetic, good lifestyle, uh, you know, getting them their life back on track and seeing them actually not only survive but thrive yeah. um, years down the track, cancer-free, yeah. I think that's, that's very rewarding. And do you have a generally a long follow-up with your patients? Yeah, so we do. Um, for Especially our oncology patients, we generally see them for 10 years. So we over the years, we do establish a very close relationship to them and the families. Yeah. And does that, uh, I guess, have an impact mm-hmm. on the amount of people that you can see? Because if you're seeing patients for 10 years, obviously they end up building up over time. We do. And, you know, I think, I think you've got to think about <coughs> how to control your, your workload and also to expand your, um, you know, just the sessions and things as, as required. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, as the practice evolves, you find that, you know, most people would consult more and more. Yeah. Seeing yeah. Their, uh, over time. their regular patients. Yeah. Over time. But yeah, there's always a, you know, I think I think most people work is limited by the amount of time they're actually able to work. Of course. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And what aspect of the, um, of breast and endocrine surgery in general is most difficult to deal with? Yeah, good question. Look, uh, I think there are multiple uh, areas which are difficult. I mean, from the, uh, again, going back to the cancer side, uh, I think, unfortunately, not every patient's going to do well. Yeah. And not everyone's going to do too badly right at the start. Sometimes they, they look like they're doing very well for a few years and then they relapse. Yeah. Uh, it is quite sad, I think, to, to see that, especially when the patient's very close to, to you in, in vintage. Yeah, you kind of uh, sometimes does reflect on your own mortality, a little bit, and also you feel sorry for the family and and kids. Uh, so I think I think that's that's a really heartbreaking side. But fortunately, most patients are you know are success yeah. stories. Uh, I guess other difficulties. I mean, there are also technical challenges. For example, a lot of a lot of the endocrine uh, surgery some uh, are straightforward, but every now and then there are some uh, which are a bit more tricky. Uh, for example, a difficult redo thyroids can be very challenging. Yeah. Some of the parathyroids, which are very difficult to find, can also be extremely challenging to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is the neck, unfortunately, is part of the body, which are quite unforgiving. Yeah. Mm. And how do you do, deal with surgical complications? <laughs> yeah. So, look, I think if, if anyone tells you that they never get complications, I don't think they're being honest with themselves. Yeah. Uh, it is important, I think, to benchmark yourself against your colleague to make sure that you are um, falling within the right uh, ballpark of what's expected of your level of performance. I think it's important to, you know, from the from your own performance level to, to think about, you know, um, what can you do to improve things next time and what's, what's gone wrong that led to that, being able to be self-critical and have mm. insight as to why things might, might not have gone as well as you'd like. And I think it also highlights the importance of communication to the patients. I think an open disclosure of what's happened is extremely important. Um, and patients need to understand why things didn't go right. 
and more importantly, they'd like to know what you're going to do about it to fix it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's all go, go into go into play. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it is important to recognise that you know uh, complications do happen if you do enough procedures. Uh, not everything's going to go well, but you do everything to try and minimise <coughs> and prevent uh, things to to going wrong in the first place. And I think prevention is a very important aspect. Does the fact that um, endocrine surgery, a lot of it, for example, being around the neck mm. with a lot of delicate structures, does mm. it lend itself to a higher risk of complications or is it just uh, more serious complications? No. Well, I mean, the thing is, the although although there are a lot of things in the area, you would find that, you know, fortunately uh, for most people around who, who do a lot of work around this area, the complication rate, in fact, is actually quite low. Mm-hmm. It's been well shown that high volume uh, surgeons certainly would have lower complication rates, serious complication rates, such as uh, you know nerve injuries and uh, injury the parathyroid gland and so forth. Uh, but uh, you know I think you know it's uh, it, it is a tricky part of the body to deal with, and uh, I think a good knowledge of the anatomy is certainly extraordinarily important. Yeah. Now, being someone who um, mm. trains fellows and takes mm. care of the different programs, how competitive <laughs> is breast and endocrine surgery to get into? Yeah, it is actually getting increasingly competitive. I think a lot of people see that as a, a very good specialty um, with a good mix of medicine and good mix of um, aesthetic surgery and also, again, good lifestyle. So it is a, a very attractive uh, specialty. Um, so we generally probably uh, at least double oversubscribe for our fellowship position every year. Yeah. Uh, so it is getting increasingly uh, competitive. Are there? Do you have to, for example, have high qualifications in order to get in at yeah. the moment? Obviously, it's with any com- uh, competitive uh, application processes. I think it is important to. Uh, look at what the selection criteria are. Yeah. And to make sure that your CV. Uh, and uh, all your other credentials uh, certainly competitive mm-hmm. uh, for what's required of the program. Uh, so therefore, I think a good early understanding of what the, the application requirements are and therefore plan accordingly to uh, improve and get enough uh, uh, points to satisfy those requirements are really important. Now, someone such as yourself mm. who wanted to do colorectal for, mm. for the longest time and then last minute switched into breast endocrine, yeah. is it still possible to do something like that? Or is it like yeah. you're saying you have to plan ahead? Look, you do need to plan ahead a little bit. Uh, and I think uh, these days, look, a lot of the things such as research and you know good references and things like that, they are generally reasonably transferable at a more junior sure. level. Yeah. Um, obviously, the more senior you become in the application process, the more... Um, specialty specific things are required yeah um, so you know they, 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 you do need to think probably I, I, I've been told by my mentor and I think that's a pretty good rule to follow you've got to have your five year plan yeah uh, because everything that you do unfortunately would take a couple of years to bear fruit yes yeah and uh, at the very least so you don't have a five year plan by where you want to be um, you find yourself coming up to to the the point of application very quickly without a suitable qualification yeah. to ensure your success. Now, with the emergence mm. of uh, new treatments, for example, for breast cancers mm. and um, whatnot, we're seeing a gradual decline in some surgical mm. um, rates, which is a good thing because yeah, you're not absolutely. putting people under the knife. How do you see the breast and endocrine field changing over the next five to ten years with yeah. respect to that and other mm-hmm. things? Look, obviously, um, 
you know, I think I don't think there's going to be a non-surgical cure for breast cancer in the yes. near future. So I think um, both uh, surgical, both uh, breast uh, cancer. Uh, as well as uh, you know, uh, thyroid, uh, a lot of the thyroid conditions such as nodular diseases and things are going to be still pretty much a surgical domain. Uh, I think there is obviously a trend towards more, um, from breast point of view, uh, more minimally invasive and uh, more aesthetically acceptable uh, surgery. Uh, and I think there's an increasing emphasis on what we call oncoplastic surgery which is combining really oncology techniques and plastic surgery reconstructive techniques yeah pretty much to improve the cosmetic outcome for the patient because i think there's an increasing recognition that uh, you know uh, breast cancer is no longer a death sentence yes most patients do survive it yes so therefore it's about restoring normality to the patient's life so from that point of view, I think it's a good advance. And there's also probably a good advance in working together with the other specialties. Yes. In arranging or rearranging more the, the, the <coughs> sequence of um, treatment. So surgery is no longer necessarily the first step. Yes. Um, we always decide the treatment plan, <coughs> including all the adjuvant therapy, uh, you know, uh, with the other specialties such as radiation, chemotherapy, uh, and things, uh, you know, we can the order in which the, the treatments are given can certainly be altered. Mm-hmm. Um, with endocrine therapy, there's certainly a lot of advances these days on um, more sort of keyhole type procedure. Yes. Although it probably hasn't picked up in Australia as much as, as overseas, there's certainly increasing applications there. So we're moving towards mm-hmm. more less invasive surgeries and more appeasing. Yeah. So I think it's probably more aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think some of these small keyhole techniques are less invasive. Ah, sure. Uh, but I think uh, they're certainly more aesthetic. And so you must be working with a lot of other specialties, such mm. as um, radiologists, oncologists, Absolutely. and medical specialties. <coughs> yeah. Um, is that was that something that drew you to the to breast and endocrine in the first place? And is yeah. it going to get more and more involved as we go forward? Yeah. Look, I think a multidisciplinary approach is extremely important these days in medicine. I think. Um, one, a lot of these uh, conditions that we treat now basically have multiple treatment modalities and surgery is only a, a part of that. And so I think, you know, being able to work with other specialists are extremely important and it's good to have team input so that you know that what you're delivering the patient as a treatment package is the best uh, standard of care mm-hmm. that, you you know, in, in 2016 you can offer. Yeah. I imagine that mm. a lot of the people that get referred to a breast and endocrine mm. surgeon obviously get reviewed by you. What por- what portion of those actually do go under the knife? Yeah, it, it, it varies a lot. I mean, the thing is, you know, more you would think that probably about a third of people okay. that we see eventually is an operation, but obviously it depends a bit on the condition yeah. which we're seeing them for. Um, obviously, any, any breast masses that look suspicious, you know, clearly requires some sort of intervention. Yeah. Um, but we do see a lot of benign conditions as well, who fortunately do not require any interventions. Okay, that's good. And in terms of subspecialties, mm. so as we go forward, medicine just becomes mm. more and more specialised. Mm. Do you see breast and endocrine splitting up or becoming yeah, more specialised? I think, I think that the, the fact that breast and endocrine are lumped together to start with is again probably more, more historical things, where the units are... Uh, traditionally just grouped together um, 
for logistic reasons in, yeah. in institutions. And then when people join a training program and end up in those institutions, they get trained in both specialties. Mm. They are obviously places uh, where the two specialties are quite separate. And therefore, for those people who are training in those units, they will only do one or the other or, or the other specialties. I think you're right. Uh, subspecialty uh, 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 surgery, uh, certainly in the metropolitan areas, is getting increasingly common among larger hospitals. And I think it is good and bad in, in, in a way. It's good in that you are getting probably a more higher volume more expert level of care and it has an impact on um, the quality of the care delivered to the patients but the downside of that is probably workforce so people being subspecialized meaning that there are less people can do everything yeah so they are obviously gray areas the conditions which don't neatly fall into a specialty ah yes and uh, so what happens to that patient who looks after yeah. that patient so the ones in the gray areas mm. get less experience. Well, you can say that, you know, it encourages multidisciplinary input or you, or, the, or you can look at it another way that the patients get, uh, well, left out in the too hard basket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think there are pros and cons and I think this is an issue that uh, we are looking into at the college, which we, we recognise as an increasing issue. There's also an element from my... Wearing my training hats, I think that's an element of uh, issue with training as well. Sure. Um, after all, our uh, trainees in general surgery are supposed to be able to do everything. They rotate through, hopefully, all the specialty units, learning each of the subspecialty skills and then putting it all together at the end of their training. But, um, you know, it is hard to balance up between the subspecialty skills and just training a well-rounded general surgeon. Mm-hmm. And I think there's going to be a workplace demand because not everyone's going to be able to work in a metropolitan subspecialty unit. Yeah. We still need general surgeons who can do everything in the country. Yeah. And explore the regional or, or you know, suburbia, suburban hospitals. Uh, so I think that there is that uh, demand issue and it's going to be increasingly an issue as people become increasingly subspecialized. With regard to <clears throat> uh, workplace demand, <clears throat> For someone who uh, who is about to qualify as a breast and endocrine surgeon, mm. is it easy for them to find a post, or are they finding that they have to exercise their general special general surgical skills more so in the yeah, beginning? Yeah, I think in the last few years, uh, the surgeon is getting increasingly difficult to find uh, highly specialized units. Yeah, to be part of, and a lot of I think a lot of junior people they got to be prepared to do a few years of uh, more general work with a little bit of breast endocrine work uh, rather than the other way around. Sure, yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, over time the workload demands will change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, people, when, I think the advice generally for people picking up career is, you know, yes, you do take into account what you want to do, what interests you. But I think it is probably prudent also to look at what's a projected um, probably availability for jobs at the other end of the training. How does one look at that? Mm. How, like, where do you find that kind of information? Yeah, I mean, as you go through the system, you would probably be able to, to see uh, where there are possible vacancies. 
Sure. And where there are increasing demands or new units opening up, people eminently retiring. Um, but you know, you got to see whether there are um, a lot of uh, you know personnel shifts, which you know often units just don't expand and suddenly take up two or three extra surgeons. Yeah. Uh, probably due to more time and uh, and money constraints. So therefore. In reality, when jobs are created, is either because people has gone away, uh, or people retired. Mm-hmm. So I think um, people got to look at the amount of workload in the area you want to work in geographically, whether there is enough work to sustain what you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. a lot of things coming into play here. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. We touched on work-life balance and that was Mm. part of the reason why you chose breast and endocrine surgery. How would you say your work-life balance is now, especially in comparison to other surgical specialties? Yeah, look, I think it's uh, generally speaking... Um, probably a little bit better than some of the uh, other specialties where uh, they're more acute work. Uh, we're certainly a bit more predictable. Although we have, we see a lot of urgent patients, um, we certainly don't have that immediate acute life-threatening uh, uh, presentations generally in breast and endocrine surgery as much as some of the other, such as GI surgery, for example. <laughs> Um, so after hours operating is certainly far less likely mm-hmm. uh, if you choose not to yeah. obviously sometimes when work gets busy we do go into uh, the evenings for operating <coughs> but that's probably our, our, our own choosing rather than there's a, a necessity yeah. to do that so would you say you have quite um, consistent or predictable work hours as I a think it's probably much more it's a lot more predictable and a lot easier to control yeah, I think. But Was, again, you know, I think you can also, you know, this this doesn't matter what specialty you do, you can certainly work out a work life balance. So don't be put off into other more demanding specialties just because, you know, um, there's more on call or something like that. Because mm-hmm. there are other other rewards and balances along the way. With regards mm. to um, your out, the predictability in the hours, mm. was it still the same kind of deal when you were a, a senior registrar or a fellow? Oh, no. <coughs> I think um, the demands as hospital staff, as hospital medical officers, is quite different to now us being VMOs, visiting medical officers. Um, you know, we, we have pretty much set sessions yes. or commitments in the public. Yes. The rest of the time... Uh, you know, if you do choose to go into private practice, it's how your choice really of how much private work you decide to do. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, not everyone does uh, part-time private and public work. Uh, there are options where people are full-time staff specialists, where they are employed primarily by the hospitals and they're mm-hmm. full-time uh, at the hospital. Obviously, then the work hours would be much more similar to uh, the uh, other hospital medical officers mm-hmm. um, but I think uh, how you choose to set up your 
uh, work time and sessions is very much uh, depending on one what's available, what's been offered to you, yeah, and two what you choose to do. Can you give us a ballpark figure, for example, how much work commitment you have during the week? Like, is it a sixty-hour week for you generally, or is it an eighty-hour week? Or yeah, it uh, it varies. I mean, we we tend to, you know, I I tend to at least schedule myself an an afternoon off. Yeah. And we do work uh, on the days that we're actually working. We probably start sometime between you know seven thirty to eight. Yeah. And we may not finish till six or seven. Okay. Sure. Uh, but uh, but I think it's important to give yourself. A reasonable amount of time off yeah you know at the end of the day where i think we all know that you know things only open nine to five the other 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 work and yeah. uh you, you got still got to go to the bank you still got to get your haircut yeah 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 that's right yeah. do you have any particular interests outside of medicine and how do you fit them in yeah so you know uh, i do uh, play a bit of sports yeah uh, a little bit of tennis and things uh, but uh, you know, obviously, you know, again with family as well, that's that's getting a bit tricky. Yeah. From as well as balancing between work, you got to balance between family commitments as well. So we try and do that, but it is important to get some uh, recreation. Yeah. Swim a little bit too. Yeah. And that's important, and it's important to uh, maintain a good social network between your your friends, either yes. from work or outside of work. That's even yes. more important. Did you find any of these things ever took a bit of a hit when you were, for example, going through your training? Yeah, training is definitely difficult. Uh, there are definitely stages in your training where you have to choose to, to probably rearrange your priorities yeah. a little bit. And there usually are times when assessment hurdles come, Yeah. Uh, particularly with the uh, entry and exit exams. I think most of those exams, unfortunately, realistically, does take a good twelve months of solid work to prepare, yeah, and correct. you are working through uh, your normal daytime job and on call as well uh, through those times. So, uh, they, yeah, they can be a bit challenging in those days. Mm-hmm. You really rely on understanding friends, yeah, and family. Yeah. Now, as someone mm-hmm. who trains a lot of both junior and senior medical staff. What advice would you have for junior medical staff and interns coming into the workforce for the first time? Do you see common mistakes being uh, occurring? And like, yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, it's. I think the most important thing when you when people start off is to be organised. There's a big gap between medical school where you're learning knowledge and how to apply your your uh, medical knowledge. And then suddenly you realise a lot of the work, especially as junior staff, is not necessarily just about practising your medicine. Yes. Uh, There's also a lot of administrative work. Mm -hmm. Running the unit, uh, running patients, uh, making arrangements, booking things. So they may appear mundane to you at the start and they kind of go, this is not doctoring. You will find that, you know, it's interesting to, to see that, you know, even at my stage, we still got to do those arrangements. Yes. And a lot of the skills that you learn in your junior years as being organized, time management, um, continue to be useful skills as you go along into your uh, more senior years. Because at the end of the day, you know, when you go into your own practice, you forget to organize a scan, well, that's your own skin on it. Yes. And you may have to cancel your own surgery. Yes. That may result in loss of income, loss of time. Inconvenience yeah. to the patient. Yeah. So you know it's uh, although no one's going to tell you off when you're a bit older to do that. Uh, you know I think it still impacts on you. So these are good skills to pick up right in the start. Yeah. And I think for junior staff, for 
it is important to ask questions. Yes. You're not expected to know everything. And I think learning how to apply the knowledge that you've learned through medical school, um, it's, uh, it is not always easy transition. Yes. Uh, is that a fault of the, <coughs> I guess, uh, medical schooling or is that just how well, life is? We try to make things as relevant as possible. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, until you actually practice it and you actually see what you've learned in, at work in practice, it's hard to get a perspective on it. So it is important as more senior clinicians, we, we, we've, seen it, we've seen things, we can shed some light on how mm-hmm. things are relevant. Mm-hmm. And do pick our brains. It's really important. If there's any questions, always ask. We're not going to really bite you or yell at you or anything. I mean, the days when you know people used to yell at people, the junior junior staff is probably over. You know, this work workplace bullying is no longer acceptable. Thank God. Yeah. So I think you know, don't be shy. Ask the questions when you're junior. Yeah. Because it's better to to ask the questions now, than to make the serious mistakes when you're older when you're right. expected. Yeah. To know the stuff. And the last question I had is, as a junior, uh, for example, as an intern, like you said, there is a lot of administrative work. And for someone who might be quite interested in surgery, it can be quite difficult for us to get down into surgery and look at see cases and whatnot. What, how, do, how should we uh, organize ourselves so that we can get to surgeries? Yeah, so it is a, a very interesting question and a common question to get asked of me. Um, it is really important, I think, it goes back to time or time management organization prioritizing work uh, so that you know what urgent needs to be done yeah they get sorted and then you spare a bit more time to go to theater and you can sort that work that can be left to later mm-hmm. so it's about thinking about priorities and time management does that mean you have to spend mm-hmm. longer at work not necessarily i think the the important thing is think about working smart no, mm-hmm. as well as working hard. Yes. A lot of the things that you do, you know, most surgeons are very sort of predictable and idiosyncratic in our, in our routines. So once you kind of learn people's routine, things are actually quite predictable what we do. Yeah. So you can almost anticipate what we may ask for. And if you make prior arrangements about ah, things yes. that you can anticipate mm-hmm. uh, well in advance, uh, then sometimes all you have to do is just activate it. Yeah. You don't actually need to physically do anything on the day when yeah. when we think when we actually su- we just suddenly say, oh, can you organize an X-ray? Yeah. Well, you know you've already done it because you knew I was going to ask you. Of course. Right. So a lot of the things are about anticipating, but it's also very important, I think, to communicate. Mm-hmm. We all know that you've got more duties to do, and you expect to perform your role in the world as much as. Being in, being in theatre. So therefore, if you actually let us know that you're going to be stuck doing something for an hour or so, you're going to miss the first case, we are actually quite happy. Yeah. Just to know that you're not slacking off in a, of in a cafe or whatever. Right? You're in fact just doing stuff, you get held up, and as soon as you, you're able to come, you come. Mm-hmm. And we, we welcome that. But I think it's a matter of uh, respect and communication to us. So, so that uh, we know where you are and we know where you're up to, uh, that certainly makes you, you know, uh, much less con- much much less uh, misunderstanding with the senior staff, and also you're much more welcome when you come along. 
but also same token we do expect you to at least have some done some preparation on the case mm-hmm. you can't just rock up and ask the boss what you're doing today yeah i'd rather you say me so um i've been reading last night about the thyroidectomy and um can you just show me some of the anatomy i can't appreciate where the nerve goes ah sure yeah so you know it's um or you can talk about the patient's case um i um i didn't send the patient got the nodule there um can you just um just quickly run by some of the indications for surgery and and i understand that this patient may have got needed surgery for this reason is that right Mm -hmm. um so we do really appreciate a level of understanding and preparation and in return you would get a more in-depth education of course yeah. uh, so that's, that's and learning really on the job mm. mm-hmm. and i think the last thing to say is probably to um co- cooperate and coordinate with your colleagues there are always more than one surgical residence yes so and there are always theater sessions happening yeah. So it is probably fair to work out a roster with your fellow surgical residents and interns so that we they everyone gets a turn each week to go to theatre while yeah. the other person covers. Yeah. So it's by helping each other out. Yeah. Then therefore everybody gets a fair go while the work still gets done. Yeah. I think it's a lot of common sense does come into it. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. All well, right. thank you so much. You've shed a lot of light on breast and endocrine and no, tips for, for having junior me. doctors. I appreciate your time. Thank no, you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. All right, guys. See you next week.